Welcome to another episode of Men's Bible Study. Today we welcome our special guest speaker, Scott Sanford, as he shares his experience serving in the Texas legislature and how we as Christians can share our light, not only in the political arena, but to the world. Now, let's hear from Scott Sanford. Good morning, it's great to be with all of you. A couple of weeks ago, my wife Shelly uh, was in a different room from I. I was in our bathroom in the morning, uh, getting ready for the day, brushing my teeth, etc. And I hear this shriek from uh, down the hallway. So I'll run down there to see what was wrong. And Shelly said, it's a big bug and it's not dead and it's not alive. <laughs> it reminded me of Christians in politics, kind of not in the right place or exactly doing the right thing, but nonetheless uh, there. So I've had the opportunity to spend 10 years in the Texas legislature and my last day was in January. And I thought I'd share with you today uh, some of the reasons that I began that. Uh, when I was first asked to run for office, my initial impression was no. I had plenty of reasons to say no. I had, we had children, we were busy, had a full-time job here at uh, Cottonwood Creek. Uh, but God put on my heart at that moment, don't say no yet. Just don't say no yet. And so I began to pray about it. I went on a 30-day prayer journey and began to seek the Lord in, in this question. And I'll never forget the time that I was alone on a little personal prayer retreat that uh, the Lord brought to mind and to remind me about my grandfathers. You see, my grandfathers both uh, were living in Carrollton and both uh, decided to go and volunteer near the age of 30 uh, in World War II. So they both fought and survived in World War II. They weren't drafted. They just had a burden for their family and their neighbors uh, that the right thing for them to do was to go and fight in the war. And one went to the European theater in the army and fought on the ground. And another went to the Naval Theater in the Pacific and uh, was on a destroyer. And both came back and I got to know them pretty well. And uh, their stories about their war experiences were few and far between because I learned that they were traumatic. But I was able to pick up enough bits and pieces here and there to know that Indeed, they were life-changing experiences, and not always for the better, but they turned out to be, they were fantastic grandfathers, and I love the influence that they, they've had on my life. And I learned that, indeed, the reason why they did that, they put their lives in harm's way and suffered the consequences uh, down the road is because they, they love their family, they, they love their neighbor. It, they also made it really clear they weren't fans of the government. They, uh, I can just imagine that they would be frustrated with government interference and military operations. But then they became small business people. And of course, any type of government regulation became a burden upon uh, their ability to do what they needed to do uh, to feed their families through their small businesses. But uh, I think it was that sense of patriotism 
that was focused on loving their family and their neighbor uh, that rubbed off on me. And I was able to uh, glean some of that. I'll never forget when I was at uh, my Pawpaw's house in Carrollton and we were watching the Dallas Cowboys football game. It would have been at Texas Stadium. We were watching, of course, a tube TV. I was a, I might have been 10, 12 years old at the time. And the Cowboys game starts. And they begin to play the national anthem. And at that time, they would show the national anthem being played in its entirety. And the cutaway shot was always the scoreboard. Now, the scoreboard at that time was, you know, the black background and there's nothing but the uh, yellow letters that would pop up. But they would put the words of the national anthem uh, on the scoreboard. Well, Pawpaw said, and I'll never forget this, he said, Son, do you know the words to that song? And I said, well, Pawpaw, they're, they're on the screen, so you know I can see him. He goes, you need to know those words. And I'll never, I'll never forget it because in that, he said so much. He said so much about his war experience. He said so much about his uh, work and his family and his, his life experience. But that patriotism was necessary, and I needed to know those words. So in my prayer journey, I uh, ended up feeling the leading of the Lord to go ahead and run uh, for office for state representative, and we were successful in that effort, and I enjoyed uh, 10 years before my recent retirement. And there's a whole lot of politics that I won't miss. There's a whole lot of that experience that's grueling, that's taxing, that takes a toll, but there's several things I really enjoyed and that I'll miss. I'll miss uh, the ministry, the interpersonal relationship ministry in Austin that I was able to have with uh, staff and uh, other legislators there. Uh, I'll miss that. I'll miss the the ministry opportunities here locally there were so many open doors for me with different social clubs, you know, Kiwanis, Rotary Clubs. They would all receive me with the open arms, our elementary schools or, or just schools in general uh, to come and speak. And inevitably, I, when I did, I'd have an opportunity to share uh, a Bible verse or be asked by a fourth grader, what's your favorite book? Well, the, the Bible or to mention that my pastor's job, my boss is... Uh, a pastor at the church, Cottonwood Creek Church, John Mark Hayton. And so I was able to always drop these uh, pieces of the gospel, even though they might be small pieces, um, in my uh, local ministry in the community. I really love that. And invariably, if I was speaking to an adult group, somebody would pull me aside afterward and say, Scott, will you pray for me about this? Inevitably, almost every time. It's, it's so I'll, I'll miss that. I'll also miss uh, another ministry component down in Austin. I was able to chair the Texas Prayer Breakfast, and that is one of the largest gatherings of people that happens during a legislative session. Um, it's the largest gathering during session of legislators, staff, and lobbyists that there is, period, and where hundreds and hundreds of people are gathered together in a convention-type setting and we have a, a worship service, and we had a wonderful time uh, of people from all different parties, all different persuasions getting together uh, to worship the Almighty God. 
I'll never forget my first time to be chair of this. I recognized that the ones in the past had no musical element, had no worship element to it. So I wanted to add that. And I didn't know um, what I should do for that. That's certainly not my uh, skill set. So I called Greg Long and he and Jana came, and I think it was 2015, and they led uh, worship for this uh, prayer breakfast. And I want to tell you, it is something. It really is something to see people from a different political persuasion, your political opponents, you know, a couple of tables over or across the room uh, with their hands raised in worship to the same almighty God uh, that I worship. And that'll have an effect on you. And that will have a, make you think about how to approach people who you might need to do some legislative work with or even legislative opposition with. But it reminds you that we are all image bearers of God, our creator. Now, we're not all children of God, or at least not everybody yet, but, the, uh, but, but they're made in God's image. And then uh, to, but to see um, people, so many people, uh, coming together to worship the Almighty God was so much fun. And I remember when Greg and Jana were there, uh, they had a substandard sound system that was provided. The hotel uh, insisted that we only use the hotel sound system and we couldn't use our own uh, sound boards or bring in our own speakers. And so they were at such a disadvantage in this very large room with hundreds of people and uh, trying to make it sound great. And I want you to know, Greg and Jenna powered through that and made it sound fantastic, and the Lord was magnified, and, and He was worshipped. Now, today, in uh, the political environment, I don't think I have to really make the case that it is indeed toxic. It is indeed, you know, vile. You don't have to look very far at all. And I know that many times the odds are stacked against us because as far as our mindset in politics and the, the quality of our thoughts, if you will, in the realm of politics, because media spools up these algorithms for us to keep our eyes on a certain page or for as long as possible at a certain place. You know, gone are the days where these algorithms uh, just tracked what you clicked on. Now they know just how much time your eyes will spend in a certain spot. And they'll spool up more of that stuff for you. And a lot of times to get you engaged and to keep you engaged, they will move to a place to enrage. They, these algorithms will draw upon and uh, base emotions such as rage and anger uh, to keep us uh, looking at that media, be it social media or now even just normal media outlets, whatever it takes to keep you engaged. And so we'd be fools to think that we weren't susceptible to that or that we weren't affected by that and that perhaps we can begin to move into a place of stinking thinking when it moves into the realm of politics. But today what we want to do is run through some scriptures and examine what is our role as Christians in government and in politics and what should it be. And we're going to focus on a couple of areas. But let's first look at Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to uh, read 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, 
for there is no authority except that which God has established. And again, I'm in Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 1. Uh, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I don't have a lot to say about that passage. I don't have a lot of commentary. There's not a lot that needs to be magnified there because it is so clear about what our role is to be as Christians and Christian citizens with our government. And it doesn't matter what, what the condition of the government is. When Paul wrote this, can you, you probably know enough of biblical history to know the type of government that uh, he was um, living in and operating in. And eventually we know he wrote several of his letters from a prison because uh, he was in prison. But it's clear that our relationship is to be one of, of honor and being subject to uh, the governing authorities. In verse 8, I find it uh, really interesting that although the subject changes, and I don't know if Paul put down his pen for a few days and, and, and God said, pick it up later, but then he began to talk about um, uh, debts or, or if it was right away. But there's a subtle um, subject change and going to verse 8. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. And at the end of verse 9, love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. So here we have right after this passage about our relationship to government going right into love. And love your neighbor as yourself. But I really love verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And if we're going to engage, and I want you to know, my encouragement is that you do engage in the political process. Let nothing I say today discourage you from that. As a matter of fact, please be encouraged to get engaged in the political process. And we're going to talk more about that. But so much political engagement today, we can't say that about uh, verse 10 about the engagement because so much harm is coming to our neighbors uh, because of the way in the environment, the way that people are acting within uh, the political culture today through, through slander, through vile talk, uh, through destruction of people's character and just being destructive in general. That, that harms people. 
but love does not harm a neighbor. Then I think in verse, it's interesting when you go down to verse 14, it's all a part of this um, chapter in Romans. Verse 14 says, Rather clothe yourself with the clo- uh, Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify desires of the flesh. But right here we have relationship to government. It's shifting into love. And then here, put on Christ's jersey. Put on the emblems of the team. Put on the team logo. Identify yourself with, with Christ. And all of this within a short, uh, very, very prox- physically uh, close to each other in all of these passages. So you've got relationship to government, and you've got love, and then you've got put on Christ, uh, really uh, all together. As we think about government, I think it's interesting to note that it's one of three God-created institutions. He clearly created the church, the body of Christ. He clearly created the institution of the family. And then uh, it's clear that he created government as an institution as well. Now, Matthew 5, 13 and 14 uh, tell us that we are the salt and light. Now, in America, we have the opportunity to be salt and light in all three of those created institutions that God himself created. And we have the opportunity to go be involved in the body of Christ, the church, and to be salt and light in our family, and to be salt and light in our government. It's a blessing that we have in this country uh, that we can do that. Let's look at Matthew 5, 13 and 14. In verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Go to verse 14. You are the light of the world. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you could be the salt of the earth or you can be the salt of the earth or you should be the salt of the earth. It doesn't say you you can be the light of the world. You should be the light of the world or you could be the light. It says you are the salt of the earth. And it says you are the light uh, of the world. Friends, That is a heavy responsibility that we bear because that means if we don't act as salt and protect and preserve all that is good and all that is right in our society, who else will? Because we, as the body of Christ, are the salt of the earth. If we don't take our lamps and turn them up bright and take them into different venues, into different places and spaces and institutions to illuminate truth and to illuminate God's character. Who else will? Because we are the light of the world. I want to share with you a quote from John Quincy Adams because he had a good handle on Christian responsibility in life in general and in politics in particular. He says, I deem it the duty of every Christian man when he betakes himself to his nightly pillow in self-examination to say, what good have I done this day? And what evil have I done that may be repaired or repented of? Nor should he rise from that pillow the next morning till after the inquiry What good can I do and to whom this day? I have made this my rule for many years with superadded prayer to the Lord of all, the giver of every good gift for light, 
for discernment, for guidance, for self-control, for a grateful heart to feel and acknowledge all His blessings, for humble resignation to His will in submission to His chastisements. Jesus Christ went about doing good. I would do the same. What are we supposed to be like in politics? Galatians 5, 23 is the passage of the fruits of the Spirit. And I think it paints a good picture of what we're to be like and act like and behave like in politics. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Look at that list. Does anything in there look familiar to the political environment today? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? You would probably say, we could probably get a unanimous poll that that, is not, that does not describe politics today. Something that really chaps me, something that really burns me up and bothers me and breaks my heart is to see on social media or at, Repub or at uh, uh, political gatherings people slandering others, tearing people down, and being destructive in general, and not exhibiting anything similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Knowing that some of these people are, are Christians, and so some Christians can get sucked into that negativity and be swayed by it and join in that. Then there are others who are actively engaged in it already. And I'm going, how can you do that? How can you check the fruits of the Spirit, the, the commands to live by, and what, the way we're supposed to be anywhere? How can you check that at the door just because you're entering, entering into the realm of politics? Scripturally speaking, you can't. It's inconsistent. It's entering into moral relativism. It's saying that these moral precepts that God has given us these fruits of the Spirit that we're to work out in our lives only apply to the situations we want them to apply in. When in fact they're universal for all moments of our life, for every venue we walk into, for every institution we engage with. Hebrews 12, 14 kind of helps us see the picture a little more clearly when it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's look at that again. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Who is everyone? It's everyone. <laughs> and do you see in the political realm a whole lot of people trying to make peace with, the, with other people? You don't. It's quite, quite the opposite. But Men, when we engage in the political sphere and with government institutions, we've got to take our, that conviction to make peace with everyone with us. Doesn't matter their political party, doesn't matter their outlook, 
but we make peace with them. And it's interesting, in this one half of a sentence, it's live in peace and to be holy. And to be holy. It's together. And then the statement, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that is a burden, another burden of responsibility. Boy, that ought to just hit us right between the eyes. It ought to be a a check on our spirit right here to, to see that if we're not holy, and I, we don't have to back up very far in that verse to, that, to see that that means we have to have peace with them, with people. If they don't see that peace and holiness from us, they won't see the Lord. They won't see the Lord. So in order to see the Lord, they need to see holiness and, and peace. And let's look back just really quickly at the fruits of the Spirit, and let's focus in on one of them. We talked a little bit about peace. Let's look at one of the others, and that's gentleness. I'd like to make the point that Jesus was gentle. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice that Jesus says in verse 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. We look at the passage and what does it mean I think it will help us understand by under that looking at the word all, and he's saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. He's saying, all of this, these all are people who are burdened by spiritual bankruptcy. And they're burdened by the weight of trying to be good enough. And it is a weight of sin upon them. And Jesus is saying, hey, come to me. I won't throw it back in your face. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you'll find rest. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to, you're not going to feel when you come to me in your shame or in your sin or in your brokenness, or in your spiritual bankruptcy, or your feeble attempts to try to be good, you're not going to find condemnation in me, and you're not going to find chastisement, but you're going to find gentleness and humility and rest and a, <laughs> and a Savior whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Gentleness is also a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, it says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold. Obviously, this is talking about Christ. I will put uh, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. I look back at this and see that, okay, here are some character attributes of the Savior. In verse 2, he will not shout or cry out. 
He's not going to be marching down the middle of the street saying, I am the Messiah and you need to stop sinning <laughs> or, or, or come to me. And if you don't, it's not going to go good for you. That's, that, that's not his character. And also in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. And a, the point there is if you think about a reed that's gotten broken over and then it's, it develops this discoloration in its stem, which is they call a bruise. And that, that, it's easy to break that bruised reed at that point of, of a bend. But Jesus says, if you are a bruised reed, if you're bruised, if you're bent, if you're injured, come to me and I won't break you. <laughs> I'm not about breaking. I'm about putting back together. I'm about healing people. And Charles Orr, who wrote a devotional book about 100 years ago, had this to say about gentleness. He says, gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If we have the Spirit of Christ, we bear this fruit. Well, says one, in my very makeup, I am rough, harsh, and hasty. Well, you need to be made anew. When God finds a man who is rough, harsh, and severe in his makeup, he will, if a man will yield to the operation of the Holy Spirit, make him mild, gentle, and peaceful. People go to a hospital and by a scientific operation have abscesses and tumors removed from the stomach and other internal parts. God, by a blessed, wonderful, and successful operation of the Holy Spirit, will take that roughness, harshness, and severity out of your nature and instead instill mildness, tenderness, softness, and gentleness. Harshness and roughness are a corruption that God in His gracious plan of salvation is pleased to remove. If you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in you that which is pleasing in God's sight, He will make you gentle. Gentleness is a beauteous grace. Her excellence is great. By culture, this grace is capable of much improvement. Too few saints experience it to the extent they should. I beseech you by the gentleness of Jesus to be earnest and improve upon your gentleness. The fruits of the Spirit and gentleness. One of the things that we often do is fight with the wrong weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. It is so tempting to enter into the political environment and see that what people are doing is all of this stuff that's negative and destructive and enter into that assuming that it's effective and that's the way things are done and the way that we should do it. God has a different plan for us. He gives us a whole set of a different set of weapons. And friends, frankly, if we use the wrong weapons, uh, we're not going to be as effective because God has special weapons for you <laughs> as a believer. And here's what 2 Corinthians 10.4 says about those weapons. They're not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. To demolish strongholds. You don't have to look very far in the political arena to find 
demonic, satanic, and evil strongholds that we would love uh, to be brought down. And how do you do that? You do that using the weapons, the right weapons. Ephesians 6, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 17 and the first part of 18, give us some insight into those weapons. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The helmet of salvation, first of all, is a protective piece of armory that assures the believer that you are saved, you are Christ. And when you put on that jersey, it, man, it is a permanent logo uh, on you that you now are Christ, uh, part of Christ's body and God's child. And that assurance can totally change uh, the way you approach situations because you can walk in the confidence of knowing God and that you are His. And then, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you, we take the Word of God with us as a weapon because it illuminates truth. It informs us. It teaches us. It will direct us in the way of truth and in our engagements with government or any of God's institutions. In verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So another tool in the toolbox, another weapon for us to use is prayer. I like this admonition to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with the right weapons <laughs> and the right fruits of the Spirit, which is all, the right ones are all of them, by the way, but taking the fruits of the Spirit into the political arena with us, we can, we'll see strongholds come down and we'll see the environment change to one that's more positive, one that's more helpful, one that builds up. 1 Timothy 1.7 gives us a little more insight into our relationship with government. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, I love this passage because it tells us that we're to be in prayer for all of our elected officials whether we agree with them or not, whether we like their policy or not, whether we're happy with them or not, but to pray for them. And there's a purpose in that so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives and in godliness and holiness. So we have to be in that prayerful mindset and praying for those in authority uh, for godliness and holiness. And I really am intrigued by verse 4 that says, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I look at that and I go, why is that there? Why is it right there? Why is it in the same paragraph with this um, admonition to pray for uh, elect, your government authorities, for our elected officials uh, here in America? Well, you know, if we're praying for people and maybe we stop in and their office and we encourage them and perhaps say, hey, we will pray for you. Hey, I want to open God's word with you. 
And by the way, that happens with legislators in Austin, and it's a fantastic ministry. Nothing's more thrilling than when somebody came into my office and said, hey, Scott, let's open up the God's Word and let's pray for you. But if we were to do that, it might be that government authority or that elected official that gets saved and comes to a knowledge of the truth. You know, in church world, the message from churches is usually like the normal one is get involved and vote. But the needed one is get involved well. Get involved in a way that's consistent with the identity in Christ. Get involved in a way that's consistent with your identity in Christ. And get involved in a way that's consistent with God's Word and His character. Now, some want the church to be super involved, where the pastor mentions politics at every sermon and touches on uh, policy every time uh, that the church gets together. Now, our pastor certainly doesn't shy away when Scripture calls for it and addresses a policy matter, if you will, or, or government matter. Certainly doesn't. And we also have at Cottonwood Creek a biblical citizenship class on Wednesday nights. It's very well attended, biblically based, and we're hosting a conference in November, a Christians Engaged conference. But any church... Any church or Christian who focuses on making citizens effective for the government of today at the expense of making them effective for the government of eternity will make them ineffective for the government of today. Does that make sense? It's that if all we focus on is the government of today, and not the coming government, because friends, a new government is coming, a new day is, is coming, and with that new government, Jesus will be on the throne, and there will be perfect justice and perfect administration. But until that day, we have the opportunity to work. But you know what will make us better at that? Is if we're prepared to work on the government of eternity and we look and, we, and our character is changed and we're molded and made more like Christ, then we'll even be more effective engaging politics and government of today. A word of comfort for those who are really concerned about the direction of our nation, and I'm certainly one of them. But if it were to all come tumbling down or our government was replaced with a highly tyrannical government, Jesus said this. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And he didn't, and it, uh, he didn't have a favorable government. As a matter of fact, it ended up killing him. So this statement that he'll build his church isn't dependent upon the type of government. If there's one that doesn't allow religious liberty or doesn't allow freedom of, of assembly, Jesus is going to build his church. That should be an encouragement to us that the institution of the church is going to be built. And it's not dependent upon 
government. Man, I, I said this already, but there will be a day with a new government and Jesus will be on the throne. Until that day, let's be effective using God's word and God's weapons to advance God's kingdom. Thank you, and I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks for tuning in to today's Bible study. For more information regarding Cottonwood Creek, go to cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you tune in next time for more episodes of Men's Bible Study.